now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. I am your host, John Morgan. I'm the Senior Director of the Center for Forensic Sciences at RTI International. Today we are going to be commemorating Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and we're uh, trying to raise awareness about sexual violence and ways to improve our response to sexual assault in our communities. One of the ways in which RTI has been engaged in sexual assault response is in the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative Program uh, here at RTI and funded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance we have with us today the two leaders at RTI for the program. The first is the director of SACI, Kevin Strom, who is also a program director in the Center for Justice, Safety, and Resilience and leads our policing research program, conducting research on a variety of projects related to policing, forensics, and homeland security. He's done a variety of work in police research, including having led a project that is very familiar to many of the people in the forensic science community, the National Forensic Laboratory Information System for DEA. He served on research advisory boards for both IACP and the Police Executive Research Forum before joining RTI, employed by the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Also with us is the co-project director for Saki, Patty Melton. She is a senior research forensic scientist here at RTI International. Dr. Melton is nationally recognized for her work in sexual assault case reform and forensic DNA analysis and was also a member of the NIJ-funded Sexual Assault Forensic Evidence Reporting Working Group, better known as the SAFER Working Group, and contributed to the development of that report and its recommendations. She also served in a crime laboratory. She has more than a decade of experience in forensic DNA analysis and testified as an expert witness. Her knowledge and experience as a DNA forensic practitioner are integral to her work within Saki and the other work that she does in supporting the forensic science community here at RTI International. So we're very, very pleased to have Kevin. Thank you, John. And Patty, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having us. This has been, uh, I know, a, a really amazing program for RTI to be engaged in. Tell me, uh, how do you view the Saki initiative and how it fits in with RTI and also kind of your own uh, professional background? Yeah, the Saki initiative is really something that I think the larger criminal justice community uh, in some ways was waiting for, and it was really a perfect time for Saki. I really credit BJA and other folks at, in the Justice Department with creating the concept of Saki and actually putting it into place. There was a number of related efforts that have been ongoing over the last decade or more, and I think in some ways uh, Saki was the logical next step. So it funds sites to uh, inventory test, investigate previously unsubmitted kits and cases associated with those kits, but also it has a more holistic approach around supporting multidisciplinary teams. So for me personally, it was very exciting for us to get the opportunity to lead the national training and technical assistance effort. For me, this was sort of a, a great next step for the path uh, in the work that I had been conducting, looking at how law enforcement, crime laboratories, and, and prosecutors and other stakeholders in the system really try and tackle this issue of unsubmitted sexual assault kits. We did some work for the National Institute of Justice in 2009. That study, I think, was important in, in sort of starting to uncover that this issue existed and the prevalence of the issue. 
And so uh, since that time, we've moved towards what's the prevalence, how, how much is this occurring, and why is it occurring, to now with Saki trying to actually address it and reduce and hopefully ultimately eliminate the problem. The name sounds like, oh, it's about sexual assault kits. And so that when you hear that title, the first impression you might give is like, oh, well, we're going to do something about this very technical problem that has nothing to do with anything but trying to process kits. But it actually is a much, much broader issue that you're trying to tackle. Yeah, absolutely. And clearly the kits are crucial to the Saki Initiative. They're in the name and and they are a central component of inventorying and testing and really working on these cases associated with these unsubmitted kits. But it is more a comprehensive program uh, that's really focused on on really sexual assault reform, um, helping jurisdictions reform their processes, work in a multidisciplinary capacity, and ideally, you know, make sure that this issue doesn't reoccur. I think that's really been what the Saki sites and other jurisdictions have found so appealing about the project, and that's what we have as well, you know, being able to work with law enforcement, prosecutors, victim advocates, crime laboratory analysts, sexual assault nurse examiners. Also, Saki now includes uh, a number of sites have research partners. We have efforts to engage crime analysts. For us and, and for me, just being able to work with this large number of folks that are all working towards a common solution to really a significant problem is very rewarding. Patty, I think you represent some aspects of that multidisciplinary uh, approach, even within yourself, because you've been at the bench, you've done DNA analysis as a scientist in a crime laboratory, but you've also seen the bigger picture with respect to sexual assault response and how to tackle this issue, you know, taking what the Safer Working Group and others have collected as needs in the field and really getting it implemented across all the uh, interdisciplinary and interagency complications that are faced out there in the criminal justice system. That's true. Actually, when I started off in Baltimore County PD and the Forensic Science Service section there, I actually was part of a multidisciplinary team. And it's an interesting perspective because when you're in the crime lab and you're working these cases, sometimes you feel like the way you do things is how everybody in the nation must be doing it the same way. I didn't realize how lucky I was to be in an organization that had a multidisciplinary team structured together. We actually had a sexual assault response team, so I met regularly with prosecutors in my area, law enforcement detectives, and sexual assault nurse examiners talking about how are we approaching some of these cases, what are some of the community efforts we could be doing to bring awareness. We had three college campuses right in the area, so of course there was some education to be done there, and we talked through those cases. From there, I just started providing DNA training for sexual assault kits to prosecutors and to law enforcement. What can they expect from us as a DNA analyst? You know, what, what can the technology do? And at that time, I mean, certainly the technology has changed since I'm no longer on the bench. So it's interesting to see this perspective because I really thought in my community that I was testing every single sexual assault kit that existed out there because I'm in the lab, right? They're coming <laughs> in and I'm, I'm working hard and I'm testing. I never realized that even in my own community, there were a whole series of sexual assault kits that never made it to the laboratory. That was a very foreign concept to me until really I stepped out away from working uh, in the crime laboratory and got more involved here at RTI and through the Safer Working Group, looking at these national problems. And I didn't even really understand the scope of it. I think one of the things I'm so impressed with with the SACI program is you know, these conversations were taking place out in the nation about there's unsubmitted sexual assault kits, untested kits sitting in shelves 
but no one really knew how many or where they were or the extent of the problem. And then, of course, you had the situation in Detroit come up, right? Suddenly we find a warehouse with all of these sexual assault kids sitting there. Thousands of them. Thousands. I think the beauty of what RTI brings to the community in forensics and in policing research is truly assessing and doing that research. But the SACI program did that. It was one of the first programs to come and said, you know, we're going to give you money and we're going to give you support through training and technical assistance to actually inventory what is on your shelves because no one knew how big the problem was. And I think that's a really important finding that's coming out from the SACI program. I think we're going to learn a lot more information as the SACI program continues through its evolutionary process, but we're finally getting a handle on how many of these kits have sat and never been submitted to the laboratory, why that happened. We're creating responses to that to prevent that from happening in the future. And I am really excited to say that never before has so much sexual assault evidence been tested and entered into CODIS and the information that we're finding coming out of CODIS about serial perpetrators for sexual assault is new information. I mean, this is going to help us in the future, you know, basically hold these perpetrators accountable. I think it's really interesting that BJA has chosen to put significant resources into training and technical assistance in this area, and it's reflective of the fundamental nature of the problem. Because we have now got, at least in the Saki jurisdictions, this effort to do the inventory, but you're trying to do more. You're trying to actually make sure that you don't have another inventory uh, five years from now, right? That we, we don't have this problem recur in these jurisdictions. Absolutely. So part of the training and technical assistance that's provided, and it runs a gamut of resources, but one of the things we do is work with these sites to say, how do we basically do a root cause analysis? What are some of the things that happened here? And how do we prevent them in the future? And how do we give you that structure and support through resources that are available and sustainable? You know, the reality is, any site could have a champion that does an amazing job in the SACI program, and then either when the funding ends, the grant ends, or that person rotates out, they could slip back, and we want to prevent anybody from slipping backward. Kevin, I know that this has been a major effort for all of us. I think that when you know we, we, we first saw RTI being engaged in this, there was a certain expectation about what was going to happen with the overall BJA program, but it's really amazing how it's exploded. You all are now serving 54 sites, and the impact in terms of number of cases that the program has overall has addressed is just astounding. I'd love for you to share with me kind of your own personal perspective about that impact and about the growth of the program overall, but also just share with the folks just what some of those numbers have been. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really been, I mean, it feels like we've been working on this project for a decade. It feels like, (laughs) and and in a good way, you know, it's one of those projects that's very rewarding when you see some of the metrics. But in terms of the sites, we do have 54 state and local SACI sites. I think those nearly cover half the U.S. population when you add up the populations, you know, of those. So some, some are statewide sites, some are local or, uh, you know, city or county or multi-county sites. And they're really all across the country. The statewide sites have a uh, unique challenge in that they're having to coordinate across hundreds of agencies, hundreds of counties or, and towns and cities. But they also have an ability to reform an entire state in terms of policy and practice. We do track uh, numbers in terms of the number of kits that were inventoried through SACI funding and, and then the number sent for testing and, and CODIS hits. I think our, our most recent metrics, which are at the end of the year, were really 65,000 previously unsubmitted kits have been inventoried uh, to date. 
more than 7,000 CODIS hits. And, you know, that's really a staggering number when you think about those are really opportunities. When you know, Patty mentions the identification of serial offending, uh, some of these offenders, I know in work that's come out of Detroit, uh, the offenders that aren't just offending in the city of Detroit, some of these are offending across multiple states. What we've learned through Saki and related research about crossover offending. So not too long ago, I think there were a lot of jurisdictions that had policies set up around uh, stranger offending versus non-strangers, or maybe they prioritize things at the crime lab that way. And really, I think we've started to sort of take down those sort of barriers a little bit and that understanding that many of these offenders commit crimes across, you know, family members, acquaintances, uh, intimate partners, strangers. That's very useful for law enforcement to know, but it's also useful for other policy within the justice and forensic system, understanding that uh, we need to think about sexual assault differently than we have in the past. Another metric I think that we're really proud of, and I know BJ is really proud of, is that every SACI site has to have a certified inventory of their unsubmitted kits. And so what that means is an accurate accounting of those kits, actually identifying certain data elements associated with those kits if they want to prioritize in terms of submission. And so we feel like that is also an achievement and something that these sites can stand behind in terms of being confident that they've accounted for all the kits in their jurisdiction, whether it's a state or a city or a county. One of the things we're working on right now and that I know another a number of these sites that have been working on this for some time is what do you do with those CODIS hits then? And so CODIS hit follow-up, I know is something that NIJ has, has worked on and others across the country. Some of our SACI sites that you know are a few years into the project, you know, helping sites prepare for sometimes the very large number of hits that are come back, uh, having strategies about how they're going to triage those. Because as we know, those don't all come in you know, a nice workflow. Sometimes they come in bunches and often they do. Um, So it's an opportunity, but also that's something that we've really worked hard to prepare sites for. They can really be proactive about uh, taking a a quick initiative with this really critical information. Yeah, one of the things I think that I'd really like to pick up on is the fact that you are getting offenders in many of these cases who are serial offending. They're offending not just with sexual assault, but with homicide and other violent crime. I'd love it if you would uh, share the Samuel Little case with us and uh, with the listeners, because I think it illustrates this really nicely. Angela Williamson of BJA, I think, was was really crucial towards this. Also, a collaboration that BJA has established and strengthened with the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, also known as VICAP, and also the Texas Rangers. I think it was through some conversations that Angela had with the Texas Rangers, making some connections. And ultimately, what that led to is, is this individual, Samuel Little, and he had committed a large number, of really a mind-blowing number, of unsolved homicides and sexual assaults across 20 states. 11 SACI sites were involved in the investigation of Little. The SACI platform and how that, that was able to uh, facilitate these communications and these linkages it really shows the power of information sharing. Uh, it shows that the power of the FBI VICAP program and how that can be used to make case-to-case connections. And it also shows us, you know, what some individuals are capable of in terms of creating this type of, you know, horrible crimes across these large number of communities. And just the number of impact in terms of families and victims across the United States. We can only hope in the future that people like this are identified earlier. Hopefully we can learn lessons about preventing these types of things in the future. But, but I think it is a credit to all the different uh, organizations that I mentioned, and it's a credit to this power of information sharing.
Yeah, and I, uh, I I certainly appreciate also the fact that what this is is it says that submitting those kits, getting those kits tested, it, it takes seriously the fact that there are real victims here that are not getting the justice that they deserve. And to be able to examine these kits and really get the jurisdictions working in that collaborative way is, is just really extraordinary. And it's a great testament to not only the program, but to all the practitioners who are involved in it. So, Patty, tell me, how does Sankey as a TTA program actually operate? So you have a site that is part of Sankey. They will get a, a direct grant, obviously, from BJA. And then the TTA program will engage with them. How do you do that? How does that process work? The TTA program is structured possibly, I think, quite differently than probably the normal or typical TTA program is structured. The first thing that we do is instead of signing like a generic uh, customer service support phone number and liaison, we actually have several site liaisons. We call them site liaisons. They're assigned to specific SACI sites, and they have an expertise in either sexual assault response reform or criminal justice or one of the relevant technical backgrounds. And they work with that site very, very closely. Uh, They build a relationship right off the bat with that site. And it takes a lot. To come forward into the SACI program is not easy. The grant itself is challenging. I mean, conducting the inventory is challenging. Coming in together with a multidisciplinary team, you can say you have one on paper, but actually coming to the table with all the players there who are willing to engage with each other is another challenge. And basically, as a jurisdiction, standing up and saying, we recognize that we did not handle sexual assault very well, um, and we want to do better, and we want our community to know that this matters to us. That takes a lot of trust. Um, you know, they're, they're exposing themselves to our site liaisons. When they say, this is our need, this is our challenge, these are some of the barriers we're facing, we don't even know how to start. So our sites come in at very different stages from each other, and we have to adapt to all of those needs. I don't want to say that at any are beginning, intermediate, and advanced, because I think those are terrible categories. But they have some things they might be a little bit better situated in and have a little bit better foothold, where other things are very raw and very barren and they need a lot of support. So we customize the TTA to those needs. We work with something called a TTA development plan, which helps us in a collaborative fashion work with the site, document the training and technical assistance we're provided to them, follow up with that, see how things are progressing, help them identify needs from the beginning and throughout the program because they evolve and change. And through that whole TTA development plan, we're always reminding them, we realize you're really busy right now, but what's your three-year window? What are you looking like as you're approaching halfway through your award? What's your sustainability of these particular aspects? And um, I think sometimes our sites are like, we love you, but at the same time, we hate you because you make us work harder. <laughs> you know, we think we're creating something off our plate and you're putting more on it. But it's that relationship. And they know that this project means a lot. Their success means a lot to us. We want to see them succeed. And we want them to have that relationship with their community and rebuild that trust and be able to stand up within their state or their community or even across the nation and say, we are a leader in sexual assault response reform. And we got here. It was hard. We had some help. But we're also extending our hand to other jurisdictions who are struggling. Learn by our mistakes or let's share our information. And so they're an amazing group to work with. RTI is is really, really happy, of course, to have this project that it's working under. But uh, it isn't really just about RTI. One of the things I think we're really, really proud of is the fact that 
you know, not only are we getting a lot of different kinds of expertise into Saki from RTI, I mean, Kevin and Patty are in two different centers here at RTI that work under the Applied Justice Research Division. But we also bring forward a very, very wide range of partners outside of RTI. So can you describe that and kind of the philosophy that we have in terms of making sure that we're bringing the right expertise to bear? We really approach this as a TTA provider We said, well, if we're going to really stand this up, we have to also be a multidisciplinary team. And so how do we bring in those expertise and how do we bring in those other agencies um, or institutes, if you will, that have that expertise? So we reached out and partnered right at the inception with the International Association of Chiefs of Police to bring in that law enforcement leadership level. We brought in for research at Michigan State University, primarily Dr. Rebecca Campbell came in. Again, that was really kind of a bigger focus on you know, victim-centered approaches, that type of research. Dr. Linda LaDre was the founder of the SANE-SART Resource Service, which had previously conducted a lot of SANE-SART training and technical assistance and had really stood up what a SART program is across the nation. So, of course, she came in to represent that discipline. For victim advocacy, at the time we brought in RAIN and Joyful Heart Foundation, we also extended that with some consultants that were more victim advocates, I'll say boots on the ground, because... Joyful Heart and Rain really brought that voice of victim advocacy and legislation to the table. And then we wanted to balance that with actual victim advocates who are working currently with law enforcement. And then from the prosecution side, we had Equitas. They've been a huge help. I mean, they've been a provider for violence against women issues um, in the prosecution section for years. So it's really been a strong team. So, Kevin, that's really bewildering to some extent. I mean, how do you all assess what a site might need, but also what kinds of products are they able to access as a site that kind of play into all of their different needs? Really, I I give a lot of credit to the team we've built here, I mean, but also the relationship we have with the partners that Patty just mentioned. We also have a number of key consultants across a number of different subject areas, uh, law enforcement, prosecution, crime laboratory, victim advocacy, and they have been excellent. One of the things we've had to do is create a a structure. Obviously, the management of an effort this big with this many partners is is really crucial. And I think a couple things come into play there. Uh, One is is people really understanding their roles and responsibilities, but also this idea of, of really very intentional communication across the project team. And from the layer of site liaisons, which, as Patty mentioned, really have the direct access and ongoing communication with the sites up through uh, the other components of the team so that, for example, identifying themes across sites I think is really important. We've really tried to to push hard on peer-to-peer learning. Obviously, we can support sites, but sometimes the best way for a site to learn is for them to also have reinforcement and ideas from other sites. And that could be a suggestion. It could be, in some cases, a policy that a site has produced at some level, whether it's for a sexual assault investigative unit or, or maybe it's another type of policy. So, for example, victim notification plan or protocol is something that every site has stood up or is working to stand up. Um, and so these are victims notified sometime during the testing or after testing of the kits. Um, every site develops their own victim notification plan. But sometimes if they're starting from scratch, having examples, being able to talk to other sites about how they went through this process is extremely beneficial. So that's something we really work hard at is the peer-to-peer learning. In terms of what we provide, one of the things we try to do is is establish a curriculum. 
and I think we're really happy with the curriculum we've created to date. We think of some trainings as really core and foundational that we want all sites to have, and that can include the, the neurobiology of the response to victimization, and uh, it can also include things around the sexual assault response team, the foundations around how to form and strengthen a sexual response team, uh, and a range of other types of trainings around uh, maybe some are specific to law enforcement or prosecution. Obviously, with the number of sites this large, we really value in-person training, but we also recognize and BJA recognize the need to have other infrastructure in place that can sort of wrap around. And so there's a few things that we're particularly proud of. One is the Saki Interactive Toolkit, which Patty mentioned. This is a, a hands-on resource. These are the resource documents, webinars, other types of information that's compiled in this toolkit and a different subject matter user can go in and really find what's most useful to them, uh, or they can just identify already an established, uh, what we call briefcase, and administer that. I think one thing we really are excited about and we want sites to do is there's no, say for law enforcement, there's no national sexual assault training. There's no recognized standardized training for law enforcement. And our hope is that the Saki toolkit could at least be the start to that. And then um, let's say a sergeant in a sexual assault unit could take that and build that and, and wrap around their own training, but at least it gives them a foundation for doing that. We've also created the Saki Virtual Academy, which is an online learning platform. It has five e-learning curricula. And that is a, a very much a complement to the Saki Toolkit. And then your other forms of webinars, training conferences. Annually, we hold the Saki Grantees Meeting, which has 200-plus of our Saki sites and other individuals. Being interactive and being detailed, really trying to focus on the things that sites need to move them forward. Um, certainly, the high-level issues are important. But as we've progressed with this project, we really recognize that sites want practical guidance that they can take back and apply. So trying to provide materials, trying to provide trainings that address those specific needs, uh, I think has been sort of at the tip of the spear for us. Yeah, one of the things I think is great, and I and every last person listening to this podcast can actually access many of the resources that you talked about at SakiTTA.org. Although it's it's been developed for the individual Saki sites, it's actually available to the broader community as well and to anyone who's interested in improving sexual assault response. Absolutely. And that's something that BJA has been very intentional about from the start of this project. Sometimes we refer, refer to it as our national reach. Um, we've worked with jurisdictions that are not funded by Saki currently. We want to make sure this is accessible by anybody, including the toolkit I mentioned, other resources. We also have uh, resources on our, our website where we summarize some of the key research in the sexual assault kit area. So we really see this as a national resource for the country, and um, we want to make sure people are aware of that. You know, I think it's really interesting because it is a model in many ways. I think that, you know, we talk a lot about kind of how we're going to handle societal problems in general, but also difficult uh, uh, questions within the criminal justice community. How are we going to improve how folks collaborate, how they tackle these issues? And your all's approach and the approach of BJA and the sites to this issue, I think it's starting to implicate these broader concerns. You know, y'all are now starting to move into examining cold case work, for example, where, you know, these are all, to some extent, they are cold cases, right? And so the lessons learned from Saki will help to uh, address some of the broader implications within the cold case units. 
That's true. So, you know, I think Dr. Angela Williamson was very insightful at the beginning, recognizing this, you know, cross-offending that we were starting to see as sexual assault kit evidence was entered into CODIS. Again, some of those things I think people speculated about, but we didn't have the evidence at the time. With the FY19 SACI site solicitation, uh, she broadened that scope to add a purpose area that was designed to address other violent crimes, recognizing that a lot of what was built underneath sexual assault and addressing that as a cold case violent crime, as we did underneath SACI, could be picked up, used, modified, and applicable to these other types of cases. It really drove it home to me when we were on a site visit a couple years ago, talking with you know their sexual assault unit, and one of the investigators there had come from homicide. And we were working through a presentation on trauma-informed interviewing, and just, again, how it's just different when you're having a conversation with a sexual assault victim about their case, or if it's a current case, about what just happened to them, how you have to treat that differently and why. And there's that impact there. And I was just amazed when this investigator said, oh, my gosh, we could use this over in homicide. Because they're dealing, although their victim is deceased, they're dealing with the family members or friends or other members of the community who saw that crime take place or know of that crime or it has impacted them. And they said, we're not sometimes getting the information we need out of them for our investigation. If we apply these techniques, this could work. And we said, absolutely. So there's an extension of that scope here recognizing that these violent offenders are committing sexual assaults and other other acts and holding them accountable, but taking a lot of the platform that is sustainable of SACI TTA and, you know, adding those resources in to support these other cold cases and a method that builds a curriculum, as Kevin was mentioning, so that agencies have a place to start for their training on side. Kevin mentioned a, a variety of kinds of deliverables that you've had under the TTA program, and I know that even within your in-person events, you have a variety of things that you've done, role-playing exercises, mock case scenarios, and, and of course, hearing from subject matter experts. I think it's interesting from the perspective of finding people where they are right now right? We sometimes will get frustrated because we want to try to address a problem out there in the world and we want to just kind of wave a magic wand and we're going to just decide that we're going to solve that now. But it isn't quite that simple. I think what you all have done is create a model for how to tackle a problem by understanding that to some extent it's a human problem and engaging with people where they are and building resources that meet their need is uh, really a great way to, to, to solve these more fundamental problems. Agreed. I mean, that's definitely been a philosophy embedded in the program right from the beginning that we still maintain and we keep moving it forward because I think one of the things that we really see as we work with these agencies is they can't work in silos and they're recognizing that. So, you know, there's one thing to say like, yep, check the box. I got an MDT, but it's another thing when we say, well, you got to go back to that MDT because you're going to create this policy. Well, but it's an investigative policy. Why do I need the input of the others? And again, kind of reinforcing that bigger picture. So there's helping to get through that in that sense of how do we all work together? Because truly as a multidisciplinary team is where they gain the most traction and the most success. But I think one of the things our, our sites struggle with is where do we fit in the rest of the nation? How do we compare to other sites? So we always really emphasize where they have their strengths and where they have their areas to grow. And as Kevin mentioned, we foster that peer-to-peer interaction. Where you have a strength, we're going to connect you with another agency that needs to grow there and vice versa. So we work that across, and that comes across in the training as well. As you mentioned, we do a lot of activity-based 
hands-on interactive base, and then plenary sessions as well. So we kind of bring everything down to the weeds, and then we come back up and discuss, and then we go back down. Where do you think this is going to head, both the, both the Saki program itself and kind of the impact that it's going to have in the criminal justice system? We kind of talk about this word about sustainability, and uh, obviously a major goal is that this initiative is a step towards uh, putting us in a better place as a country than, than we were in the past. So one thing that I wanted to highlight is some of the steps we're taking with BJA and the FBI and others to sort of fill these gaps towards sustainability. And some of these things are also, if you want to call them accountability measures, um, one of those is evidence tracking systems. Many states now are, have implemented or are, have legislation to implement an evidence tracking system. Uh, some of the, many of our local sites are also working on that. With the issue of sexual assault kits, that means having some accountability of knowing you know, how many kits are coming in and how many have been analyzed or have yet to be analyzed. And I think that alone, a quality evidence tracking system will help really in major way, you know, sort of eliminate this, this issue of kits sitting in the, on the shelf that maybe uh, folks weren't aware of. Another one is uh, this issue of lawfully owed DNA. It's another one that we kind of think about as sort of filling a gap. And this one is is a a pretty large gap. So basically what we mean by lawfully owed DNA is every convicted felon in the United States is required to submit DNA and, and have that entered into CODIS. But also many states, certain arrestees of certain types, but the reality is in many instances, or in some instances, that's not occurring. Um, there's a breakdown. And so that's another area where, where Saki has stepped into, and we have uh, multiple sites now working on that issue to not only identify those individuals that should have DNA in the CODIS system and do not, but then to figure out a way of, of filling that gap. So in terms of the big picture, I think that's where Saki is moving in terms of how do we address these more systemic issues? How do we routinize the issue of having ongoing inventories or policies that require mandatory testing? But also, how do we make sure that sexual assault is treated in a consistent and high-quality manner from the moment it's reported all the way through conviction and that victims are engaged throughout the process and supported uh, we, we don't necessarily always think, obviously, a conviction is a high-quality outcome, but in some cases where a conviction cannot be achieved, we still want to make sure that victims are supported throughout the process. Hopefully, we can look back and see Saki as a starting point to all those things. How we view sexual assault and how we respond to it is consistent across states and local entities, and that we can feel good about what we're doing to support victims. And I think ultimately also, sexual assault is still, still a fairly low-reported crime. And so we've seen some places where their sexual assault reports have been going up. And often we see that as a good thing because we know that, you know, upwards of 80 percent of sexual assault crimes are not reported to police. So I think that's another metric. If we can sort of see some uptick in that, the victims are more confident to come forward. Trust in the police, trust in the system is increasing. That, that would be extremely rewarding, I know, for Patty and myself and for others that work on this. Yeah, and I, and I hope that it's heartening to the advocacy community, and I, and I hope that it, it's also of some uh, heart to the uh, St. Sart community. My perception is sometimes the St. Sart community feels like, you know, we've been pushing for this issue for so long. Here's an opportunity now for them to see the other parts of the criminal justice system, there are people there who can be just as passionate as them about this issue and want to work with them to solve it and to address the Safer Working Group recommendations. I mean, Patty, do you think that we're making progress against the Safer Working Group recommendations and building on that the vision of the St. Sart community in that regard? 
I think the uh, Safer Recommendations was an amazing document to really lay out the standards and kind of define where we need to go as a nation in sexual assault response. And so I do see that SACI is, is complementary to those recommendations and works to support those. I mean, obviously, SACI has a focus on cold case, but we do recognize that so, many of, so much of what we do overlaps into current case, so I think there's a bridge there that's also being exposed. The feedback I'm seeing from the St. Sark community in general is they're proud of what's happening in SACI, and I mean, many of them would probably say it's about time, because they're really the first responders, right? They're who sees these victims first. They're the ones who try to put these individuals on a path for healing and hope that they get that support. And as Kevin mentioned, that criminal justice side of that support is so important, but so is the healing. I think many victims of sexual assault, as they evolve through their healing process to, to what I would determine as a survivor, when they feel like they've, they've become a survivor themselves, they will sometimes tell you it wasn't about whether he was convicted or not. It was about that someone believed me and supported me and did everything they could for my case. To me, the goal was not to win. The goal was to be supported. And so I think between the recommendations that came out of the Safer Working Group and between efforts like SACI and other efforts at NIJ, I think these are starting to come together on a national level, and I think that's very powerful. Well, this has been a great conversation. I'd like to thank Dr. Kevin Strom and Dr. Patricia Melton for being with us today and talking about all the great stuff that's happening under the uh, SACI program in general and what they're trying to do in the training and technical assistance uh, efforts. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. And thank you, Patty. Thank you very much. And I want to thank you, the listeners, for downloading and listening to Just Science and being a part of building this community of practice in forensic science and broader in the criminal justice community. And please tell your friends and colleagues to also join us and learn more about how we can improve the uh, use of forensic science more broadly in criminal justice and to improve how we uh, respond not only to sexual assault but to the full range of, of crime. The opinions and viewpoints expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Thank you for being with us today.